The name of our podcast is Morality, Justice, Leadership in K-16 Education. The need for, quote, telling better stories. Within this podcast, the panelists will critically engage in an interdisciplinary and intersectional storytelling, counter storytelling about what counts as truth and how we come to truth and how these processes impact disabled, dis-slash-abled, Black, Indigenous, and youth of color, students individually, interpersonally, structurally, and politically within the K-16 education. Individually and collectively, we personally and professionally provide frameworks, discourse, given our identities and positionalities from our respective fields for justice praxis. We do this around the following ideas, morality, justice, and leadership. Welcome everyone. My name is David Hernandez-Saca and I'm an assistant professor of disability studies in um, education at the University of Northern Iowa. I investigate the role of affect and emotions in teacher learning as it relates to social justice issues. I am here with two of my colleagues from the University of Northern Iowa and one from the University of New Hampshire in an interdisciplinary collaboration. I'm gonna throw it over now to um, Scott to introduce himself. Hi, uh, my name's Scott Ellison. I'm an associate professor of social and cultural foundations uh, at the University of Northern Iowa. Happy to be here. Hey, uh, my name is Joyce Levingston. I am uh, in the EDD program of Allied Health, Recreation, and Community Services at the University of Northern Iowa, and I am ecstatic to be here. And I am Scott McNamara, and I am a brand new faculty member at the University of New Hampshire and in the kinesiology department, and my area of specialty is physical activity and physical education for people with disabilities. Great. Thank you. Um, so um, I'm going to also turn it over to Scott E. again um, to get us started. All right. Uh, well, I mean, David asked me to uh, talk about storytelling, and that's kind of the theme of what we're up to today. Uh, and it's, for me, a lot of this comes out of, of work I've been doing recently. You know, I've been thinking a lot about um, uh, the, my approach to research and teaching lately and uh, to do a shameless plug, I just published a book called uh, Education Crisis and the Discipline of the Conjuncture, in which uh, the last two chapters address those two topics. So uh, considering I just finished that and I'm just putting my classes together for the fall, this is something I've really been thinking about. So uh, what I want to talk about right now is my teaching, okay? And what does it mean to tell better stories in the classroom? Uh, and what I'm really up to is I'm trying to push back against what I think are like two pernicious trends in education. Uh, one is instrumentalism, this focus on content and the most hated phrase, best practices, right? As though teaching is a recipe. 
the other one that I'm trying to push back against is this liberal ideal of social justice. And what I mean by that is through, and it's related to the first one, it's technocratic, right? It's this idea through better curriculum, better classroom management, things of that nature. We're going to achieve some measure of social justice. And I think there's lots wrong with that. But for me, uh, the easiest way to talk about what's wrong is that it, it's just about tweaking things. It never actually questions the institutions of K-12 education, university education, and whatnot. And, you know, we've been at these technocratic reforms for decades, basically my whole life. And we really don't have much to show for it in terms of the, the deep societal issues that we have and how those issues play out in classrooms. So for me, what I'm trying to do is, is I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking about content so much anymore. I'm thinking about how my students relate to, uh, and my students are future teachers for the most part, but I'm interested in how they relate to their profession, to teaching, to schools, and ultimately to society. And I, I try to do this through storytelling. So what I mean by that is I try to take the stories that my students bring with them, the common sense ideas that they bring with them from their life experience, but also what they're learning in teacher education courses. And I try to do a couple of things. First, we go over, we talk about those stories and we flesh it out and make sure that we're all on the same page. And then I demonstrate, I try to demonstrate why they're problematic. And then I try to tell a better story. So what does that mean? Well, for me, what that means is I build context around things. So I take something like STEM education. That's the thing everybody's talking about today, right? And it's the, the royal road to social justice as well. And I try to start constructing context around it and think about it like I'm, I'm reverse engineering an onion. I take the story itself and I tell another story. And then I tell another story. And each one kind of expands out. Uh, and my goal isn't necessarily to teach content, although, of course, I am teaching content. But my ultimate goal is to take the things that my students bring with them and to demonstrate that it's problematic, to kind of cultivate in my students a misrelation to what they take as commonsensical. And I think that way of re relating to their profession, relating to schools, and ultimately how they relate to social reality, I think that's way more important than teaching content that I can measure and, and, and plot on a graph, if that makes sense. So to me, it's all about dominant stories, deconstructing those stories, and trying to, to quote Lawrence Grossberg, tell a better story. And that's really all I'm up to these days. So uh, I think my job was to kind of kick off the conversation, and I hope I did. So I'll turn it over to smarter people than I. Well, you failed on that, but uh, that last part. But I haven't, so... You know, I was remembering our last conversation, and I remember we talked. I think what brought this conversation apart is we actually talked about the need to have storytelling in our world to push social justice things. And I kind of actually want to maybe push back on something that you're saying there. And we, I think, said that, or maybe I read this afterwards or something, but that conservatives and conservative kind of media. Is actually has dominated the ability to tell better stories. And that oftentimes that's why they're kind of doing certain things. They're actually telling better stories. Does it, but in a way though, so just kind of making sure that we tell stories and such, it like if the, um, just sometimes that can be like grifting, 
You know what I mean? Like we can, we, if I'm good at rhetoric and I'm good at storytelling, I can get people like Charles Manson was good at storytelling. You know what I mean? Uh, like that doesn't mean that the content's good or, or that the, 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 that the, you know, the subject matter is good. So like when you say all that about that, we have to kind of make this good story or make a better story. How does that fit in alignment with kind of, um, quality control in there too and not just i'm a good speaker oh yeah so agreed and it comes down to those contexts like how rigorously you construct the context around things so for instance i use stem education as an example so one of the ways i do that is uh in terms of the dominant story is who's telling the story so we dive into Silicon Valley and the very strange culture that emerged from the 70s today to today, right? Uh, the World Economic Forum and how the Davos set talk about it, how corporate America talks about it, how the state of Iowa talks about it, for example. So I, I, I try to layer on these contexts. So it's not necessarily about rhetoric in, in terms of telling a better story. It's about taking something that is kind of taught uncritically and is accepted that there is a stem crisis for example and that if we fix this stem crisis we're going to preserve our economic future and we're going to solve you know for example racial and economic inequalities and things of that nature and i try to, as i build those contexts i'm demonstrating why there's not a lot of evidence that that's actually true does that make sense so yeah i see exactly where you're coming from so you um, and you're and just to like Kind of paraphrase it. I think at first, like, like a lot of big words and big ideas came at me at least, yeah. and I was trying to decipher all that. But like, you're kind of saying that you're showing like a lot of different perspectives on stories, and then trying to deconstruct certain stories to make sure one story is better than the other. Correct. Or, or not better, but more true, or has more truth and experience within it. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, I'm bad about five dollar words. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this kind of reminds me of, you know, when we talk about dismantling hegemonies um, and when you both were speaking of um, stories, <clears throat> when Scott M. was speaking, um, what came to my mind was it's not who's like telling the better stories, but it's whose stories are are structurally in place, right? And whose stories have the um, media backing, right? And um, the media push, um, whose stories are uh, wrote in textbooks as stereotypes. Um, you know, as uh, over the last summer, I was working with a group of kids and they were predominantly all black kids. And we had two kids that weren't black. Um, and the two kids that weren't black, they were acting out in ways where all, all of us staff were black too, where we were like, what is going on? And we sat down and we had a conversation and I brought to the table that these kids are thinking that they're acting how they think black people act due to how we've been portrayed through media, through storytelling, through textbooks. Um, and it became very clear that that was a big part of that. So I just think about um, when we do have some, uh, when we do have moments of interrupting um, people's 
thoughts or people's automatic uh, way that they would automatically assume things, um, that word disruption comes to mind, uh, as well as dismantling hegemonies, because I know we can say things like, this is a great campus, but I could come on there and be like, I never had one good semester at campus. (laughs) Like My story could be um, totally different. Uh, And then I just want to add a note too. I did take a class with um, Dr. Ellison at UNI. And I can remember in his class that I don't, I think all of us were so honestly colonized and that we hadn't had an introduction to someone questioning um, white textbook authors, someone questioning uh, research or someone questioning why um, certain research isn't credible versus researchers whose stuff is just credible. And so it was a shock to us. And, and I remember being kind of frustrated because I remember not understanding sometimes exactly what it was he was saying or getting at. And it would click later, like in a life experience. Um, and when I think about what we did learn in his class is as even as a black woman, for me, it was emotionally exhausting uh, because no one had ever taught me that before. And no one had ever, I feel like, revealed, showed what was behind certain curtains. Um, but once my thinking was disrupted and once I had a, a moment of awakening, it made me just go deeper into it. So I followed up by taking similar classes. Wow, that's that's a hell of a compliment. Thank you, Joyce, <laughs> because that's exactly what I'm I'm trying to do. Uh, the The way you talk, you spoke about it in terms of your thinking. The thinking is more important, I think, than the content, because the way you relate to your profession, the world, and so forth, will inform how you act in it. Right. So instead of just taking things, for instance, that come from administration through a school district or something of that nature you're going to think twice about it. You're going to look for alternative stories about this. And it's just a different way of approaching scholarship, teaching, and so forth. So thank you. That's that's a compliment. Well, Scotty, why, why do you believe that um, there is this focus on content versus critical thinking, which is what I think you're really getting at? It, like from my mindset, it's A, I think that it's the public wants like kind of like very specific measure, quote unquote, measurable outcomes. And then B, I think it's easier. But what do you think? I would agree. Uh, the, the part about the public wanting it, though, is I always think when we talk about public demands, public demands are always shaped, right? I mean, that's what political campaigns do. That's what marketing campaigns do. And we often lose track of that. So I think that's cultivated in a way. And I think a lot of it comes down to kind of a technocratic logic, right? That Well, we want to be able to order things in a rational way that we want to like say, well, this is what we want them to know. We're going to deliver it like this. And then at the end, we want to be able to show, hey, look what they've learned and everybody can go ooh and ah. But I think although, I mean, it's not an old conversation. Max Weber was talking about how this is a trap, right? That in a way you need those kinds of instrumental logics in order to organize anything, whether it's a car company, a university, or a small business, right? Or even a religious institution. But it comes at a cost. And that cost is that it's, he called it the iron cage, right? That we're all kind of trapped 
in this way. And it's actually a limit, a self-imposed limit that we place on ourselves. And, you know, that's just Weber. You can look at it in psychology, you know, the old adage of be careful what you measure because that's all you're going to end up caring about, things of that nature. So I think it, it comes down to a technocratic logic. <clears throat> yeah, I think um, one of the things that this conversation is making me think about is the nature of thought and the nature of theory and the interrelationship between theory and practice and um, how important this is to our uh, podcast theme around morality, justice, leadership, and telling better stories um, as it relates to right the praxis, the critical thinking and feeling that is going on in our minds and in our hearts in this time in history. Um, as our first podcast also alluded to in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the multiple social justice crises and pandemics that we're experiencing, but especially, at least for me, um, for black and brown communities, and students that I come in contact with and that um, Joyce alluded to in terms of what is centered is those white uh, upper-class able-bodied ways of doing and being and norms that are inherently um, moral and um, justice and leadership issue. But I don't think it's been framed um in the sort of like long game that is our institution of public education in such a way that I think um, that's why I was nervous and excited um, before this podcast because the language that we're co-creating right now together um, that will inform our future moral actions uh, and ethical decisions, um, I think for me, I situate them based off of my personal identities um, and, and how this is also identity work, but identity work is not enough. We need to go beyond identity work um, because I think Joyce's um, comment that um, lived experience that she was mentioning is also connected to the identity, um, the stickiness of identity where it can afford and constrain our um, self-determination or our student self-determination um, based off of those stereotypes that are attached to the historical legacies of slavery to today, et cetera. And so for me, I always try to think about like, um, in terms of, I never really thought about it in terms of morality before, but uh, in a sense, the student-teacher relationship um, or what Scott is talking about, Scott E, the relationship between um, the instructor and his or her students and the content that, um, right, quote unquote, must be learned, but at the same time, 
the processes that um, we are informing, for me, socially co-constructing together. Um, and so I guess um, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about as I think about the translation between research to practice, um, false binary, if you will, um, but the ways in which um, right, our problems of practice, for example, for me, coming from a um, disability studies and education approach around um, literacy and learning disabilities, um, where we have disproportionality, more um, students of color being labeled with um, learning disabilities that in a sense have to do with um, their um, psychological functioning in schools where perhaps their psychological functioning in their home communities um, are qualitatively different, but how those um, um, cultural practices of literacy outside in um, their communities, for example, hip hop um, literacy or other forms that um, are really centered in their um, daily lives that are um, not taken up in dominant institutions such as um, K through 12 and beyond. And, and really focusing on that um, as a counter discourse, as opposed to right thinking about these um, technical logics that um, Scott E is also talking about, and so in a sense, actually, this conversation is is a is fresh air that that's the sort of inner chatter or dialogue that I have before I act to the best of my ability right, and my experiences um, when I enter into dialogue and generate a new, um, new way of conceptualizing and thinking um, with my students and also as a teacher educator, um, the, the ethical and moral and just um, knowledge, skills, and dispositions that we would want to engender into our future um, educators. So uh, I'm just thinking out loud, but um, based off of what we're saying, I think um, that's where what counts as um, a teacher educator around a particular view um, that is undergird by critical theory um, has been important to my praxis, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I like that you point towards identity work because uh, that's something I'm really interested in in terms of the, my students, right? The future teachers, whether, you know, regardless of what kind of classroom they're working in. And I guess the way you, I would think about it is, I think I mentioned in previous uh, podcasts that I'm really, my work's informed by Stuart Hall. And he talks about, if you're doing political work, you're doing ideological work, or you're not doing political work, right? So in terms of identity, our students' identity, 
it's not about teaching content to them. It's they're navigating all kinds of different stories. So for instance, in disability studies, they might be navigating the story they've heard the most is maybe the medical model, right? To tell a different story is to layer on another way, another story, right? And by putting that story on there, you're kind of interrupting that identity work. So it's not about here, here's another model to think about disability. It's let's shake up that identity work. Let's add a new story to it. And there's no guarantees as to what's going to come next. But that right there, I think, is is what it means to do critical work in the classroom. So, you know, I've heard a, a number of really interesting things here. And, and, you know, we're talking about having a story. We're talking about critical um, teaching and, and thinking and, and pedagogies. And then we're talking about research to practice. That term's come up a lot. And I, I think that's often a gap. Even what Scott E's talking about right now, I wonder... Something that I'm always like afraid of, and even like so right now, like talking about something that's controversial and a hot topic right now is critical race theory being taught in schools and that term being a buzz term and the very politicized word right now. And I do fear even when I hear that, I, you know, I would contend that that's a great thing for everyone to learn, but it's likely not being taught in many areas to any real like, you know, but um, with that, though, too. I do worry from that research to practice is are our teachers able to uh, teach these things in a proficient way? So we can say all these things and say it's great to have critical pedagogy where they're really like thinking about thinking about thinking and teaching people how to think about thinking. But, you know, I, I'm not sure that a lot of our, our I would feel confident and in, in especially my beginning teachers doing that type of pedagogy right away. And I wonder if that research to practice gap is there as well. Of like, how, are they proficient? How do we make them proficient? And I don't know. Well, I mean, I think that's a great point. And that's something I try to talk about with my teacher ed students is that when you get in the classroom, you're going to be constrained in a lot of ways by the institution itself. But the other line of research, which I'm not going to open up because we're running low on time, deals with uh, teachers as policy actors, right? That at some point, if there's going to be change, it's not going to come from the top down. If it does, it'll look, it'll just be repackaged what we're already doing. It's going to have to be ground up. And I think that's, once again, why I'm interested in how these future teachers relate to their practice, relate to the institution, and relate to society as a whole. Because for the first step of activism, of, of getting out there and trying to change structures, is to understand the problems. So another way I talk about telling better stories is mapping the terrain. You got to know the terrain you're navigating to make change. So... I know I'm throwing a lot of terms out. And did I mention it's all in a book? That's okay. Selfless. Well, um, we are running out of time. Um, but I Can I add one more thing? Yes, Just as a parent um, that has a son in special education with an IEP, um, we have to figure out a way to prepare our educators. Otherwise, they shouldn't be in the field. I feel like they shouldn't be out there teaching because what happens is our students suffer and not only our students, but the parents suffer as well. 
thus our entire community. Um, and so we have to figure out a way rather that's from the beginning. Like I had mentioned earlier, I was in my, I don't know, I may have been in the doc program already. I was somewhere in my master's degree or doctorate degree before I had um, Dr. Ellison's class. And I will say that Dr. Ellison's class was the first class that I had like that from um, maybe even junior college. I didn't have any in junior college or didn't have any while I was getting my bachelor's degree. So um, a lot of times these educators aren't even reaching the level where they are discussing or talking about critical race theory, um, especially critical race theory in education. Right. So we need to figure out some way because unfortunately, my family has been one of the families to suffer from um, teachers not being culturally competent. And not only that, but teachers just not allowing my son to be a black boy. I am very sorry. Can I add one more thing to Joyce's thing about the IEP? I really apologize. Because <laughs> I don't. Anyways, um, I was actually at a conference last week, an unnamed conference, and I was a, a speaker for them to talk about adaptive physical education. And I got actually, I was in Des Moines last weekend um, for a few days, and uh, I spoke to Iowa special ed teachers and and such about um, including adaptive physical education and about how it fits in the law and how to navigate the IEP process. A teacher, it was a very great group of special ed teachers that I talked to that were very, very interested in doing it correctly. And somebody raised their hand at some point and said, we don't want to be out of compliance with the law. We want we want to do what's best for the student, but we didn't know any of this. And so, like, I think it's a pretty, and I talked to them in the hallway after, and it's, it's monumental things. And this is a piece that's supposed to be already seen in the federal law, which is what we want, right? It's a and they're, they don't have the information. They don't have the structural support. If they did put it on the IEP, um, because many school districts don't have access to an adaptive physical educator, which they should by law if it's on their IEP, um, you have school administrators that basically tell them to take it off uh, because it would cost them a salary or something. Um, and so you have these. So I, I just felt like that those words from special ed teachers were really powerful of we don't want to be out of compliance. So. I th it's, it's structural. It's all these levels, teacher education, administrators, teachers, parents. Um, and, and these are uh, gigantic things that we have to move. And it's so, so layered. Yeah, I think that we should just start with like asking a white teacher to Dougie or asking a white teacher to Nene. Let me see you, Dougie. Let me see you, Nene. Let me see you, Whip. Let me see you, Nene. Um, and see how comfortable you are with it. Because if you're not comfortable with that, I feel like we'll try to make up any excuse that we could just to say, like, we don't have rhythm, you know, just to say, like, you know, like, just to admit, basically, that we are used to things being catered to our comfortability. Because if I said, hey, let's four square line dance, and everyone would start lining up and, you know, trying to kick their heels up. But um yeah, I think it, it is a lot. And uh, I think in special education, that's a um, not special, just special education, but in physical education, that's where a lot of the connection can come from. Um, especially I remember um, most of I went to a predominantly white elementary school and I remember P.E. 
it was fun, but it was super white. And I have never four squared or line danced in my life except in PE and also did a lot of other things that you could tell it wasn't, they didn't do anything for my culture. I didn't see anything like that. So, but knowing that a lot of those um, teachers are also coaches and also mentors and also our favorite, our favorite teachers as well, um, that could be a place where, you know, they were able to start at, you know, or able to penetrate um, kind of hard as well. That's what they should be doing. They should be teaching from a variety of cultures, things that are part of their cultures, things that are new to them. And it is dances in an incredible way. And sports are incredible ways to teach those in a really uh, a fun way. Yes. So, um, <clears throat> Just to wrap it up, I think um, we're actually ending in a really good conversation as it rela relates to policy and practice and um, what counts as policy, um, where in a sense, our teachers need a radically new orientation to what counts as teacher work um, that goes beyond compliance and goes beyond the technical, though, in a way that um, um, there is skin in the game for everyone um, and that there are consequences to our actions as agents in the system um, regarding discursive, um, the psychological well-being, the emotive, and the uh, material um, well-being um, of mm, the current and future generations of um, Americans. And so I think that um, we can no longer sort of um, have uh, a neutral policy, if you will, or view of policy as, as if it is um, not designed by those in power. And so this speaking truth to power um, sort of other theme that we are engaging in um, that really centers marginalized epistemologies or ways of knowing um, from black and brown communities, I think can um, reframe and um, really reorient our future teacher candidates and future teachers um, in their teacher work. So um, maybe we'll go around and just have, I guess I'll use that as kind of my final two cents. Um, and we'll go around and have folks share their final two cents. Um, yeah, can... <laughs> I'll go ahead and start. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to um, work with you all. And I am excited to continue the work that we've all been doing. And I'm excited to read that book, Dr. Ellison. Yeah, it was, it's been a pleasure uh, working with you all and hearing you all speak. I love this kind of free form of 
talking, thinking, digesting, and, and the way of the podcast way of, I really think that this is uh, a really nice, like almost like model of how learning really does occur is through these conversations versus, you know, whatever, um, a lot of other ways. So I think it's just a, an awesome way to kind of let people in on the conversation that allows us to learn and, and better ourselves. Yeah, I'm going to agree. I've learned a lot from you guys and I'm using that in a gender neutral way, by the way, but I've learned a lot from you guys. And uh, yeah, I think this is a model, right? A kind of organic conversation of like, here's a topic and running with it. So I, I've enjoyed it and I hope we can continue these conversations in the future. Me too. Thank you, everyone. Um, have a great night. This resource was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to our publications, click on the subscribe to our publications link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center, is funded by the United States Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout our 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This product and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by an, any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank the Indiana University School of Education Indianapolis at IUPY, as well as Executive Director Dr. Kathleen Quintorius, Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, and Associate Director Dr. Tiffany Kaiser for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.